I'm just kidding. Hey, well, we are glad to have you guys this morning. My name is Brandon, and I uh, think give me the privilege of being a pastor here. And uh, we are glad to hang out with you. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, my family uh, have uh, been out of the state. Uh, we have been enjoying some vacation. And so we just want to say thank you uh, to our church family for allowing us to have a couple of weeks to enjoy some time together. Uh, we went hiking and uh, rafting through the state of Montana and uh, saw a bunch of grizzly bears and black bears and uh, elk and muleys and all kinds of things. We had just a fantastic time. And so uh, we thank you very much uh, for letting us have time together. Real quickly, let me pray for us. And then we're going to uh, welcome everyone on our Edgewood campus, those joining us online. We're going to dive in and we're going to talk about what it looks like to be faithful. And so let's, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for our time together. Pray, Lord, that as we dive into this text, that, Lord, that you would use it to encourage and remind us of what faithfulness looks like. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as, a, uh, as I was reading a handful of days ago, I came across the story of a young man uh, who uh, approached his, his father in his study. His dad was a pastor and he was in his study and he was uh, kind of working on a handful of things. The young boy had just turned 16, gone through driver's ed, got uh, his license and all of those things were taken care of. And he goes, hey, dad, I would love to borrow the car if that's okay. I uh, would love to kind of, you know, just maybe cruise town a little bit. And dad, dad looks at him, he goes, hey, listen, son, that would be a great idea. But before we use the car, uh, there's a handful of things I would like to kind of maybe figure out and see you grow in. He goes, there's some chores around the house that you've yet to do. He goes, your grades are kind of slacking a little bit. I'd like them to come up. Uh, he goes, I would love to see you study your Bible a little bit more. And he goes, son, we also need to talk about this long hair that you got going on. I'd like to see a haircut. So boy walks out of his dad's study. He was a little bit kind of confused, a little perplexed, a little bit kind of just bummed. And uh, he goes about his business. Uh, a handful of weeks go by, he comes back in, his dad's studying. He goes, hey, dad, you know, I've been kind of working on a handful of things. I want to talk about maybe borrowing the car. And dad goes, you know what? I've been very pleased with you, son. I had it on my to-do list to get around to talk to you about it. And he goes, your grades are, are doing a whole lot better. He goes, I, I'm, I think you're crushing it. He goes, your, your chores, I mean, those have really taken off. And he goes, I've seen you study your Bible diligently. He goes, I'm really pleased with you. And he goes, but there's this one thing. He goes, that long hair. He goes, we still have yet to address that. He goes, you haven't got a haircut. He goes, Dad, well, I've been thinking about that. He goes, you know, when I think about reading my Bible, he goes, and long hair, he goes, that kind of goes along with like Samson. You know, Samson had long hair and that was a strength of the Lord. And he goes, and I, you know, Moses, I'm sure had long hair. And he goes, I think you could make a case for uh, others that had long hair. I mean, Jesus, after all, had long hair. And he goes, son, that is really good. That's great observation. He goes, but the one thing you failed to observe that all those guys walked everywhere they went. So if you want to keep your long hair, that's fine. You walk wherever you'd like to go. I don't know about you, but growing up in the church, I think about polished, being polished person. I think about uh, what it was like, you know, like to do your chores and read your Bible and, and to be, you know, kind of groomed neatly, to wear certain proper attire, to look a certain way. And that was kind of the look that a lot of pastors or uh, parents would oftentimes go for. But one of the things that I think is really unique uh, about what we're going to learn today, but also as you study your Bible, is that God is always interested, not on the outward appearance, but on the heart and about what ha is happening on the inside of a person. And one of the reasons that we began Stone Point over 10 years ago was simply so that people who maybe you grew up in the church, but uh, in some ways you left or, or maybe you've never been in a church, but you just, you, you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, man, I don't really fit in. I don't belong. I don't, I'm not polished. I, I'm not cut. I got long hair. I got tattoos. 
this is a safe place, a safe place where God can work on the inward being of a person. And today I wanted to share with you seven qualities that King David understood about a person and about a faithfulness of a man. And because it's Father's Day, I want to focus uh, really on the man. But listen, I'll tell you this, whether you're a father or you're a young man, or maybe you're even a lady in the room, this message applies to you. And the reason why is because even as we address a man, we're really talking about mankind and humanity as David in Psalm 15 begins to ask a couple of really good questions in verse 1. And then as he unfolds the answer to that, he shows us these character qualities or these traits of faithful people. And if you're a woman in here and you're single, these are seven qualities that you should be looking for in a godly man. If these things aren't there, then you're, you're looking for th- things that are going to run into dead-end roads. And they are not going to produce health and vitality And they are not going to bring about purpose in your life that is fulfilling. And so if you'll join me, if you have your Bibles, I want to hop into Psalm chapter 15. If you're new to church, you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bless you with one today. So if you'll go to Connection Point on either one of our campuses, we'd love to give you a Bible that you can begin reading. If you did bring your Bible with you and uh, you want to try out a little test of going to Psalm 15, if you'll get your Bible, you'll grab it, go to the very middle. If you're really good, you'll land land in Psalm. Uh, And so if you're in Psalms, then you're going to go to the biggest highlighted section. It's going to be the chapters. You're going to go to chapter 15. So Psalm 15. There's five verses in here. And in verse one, David, the king of Israel, he asks two polarizing questions. And the questions revolve around the proximity that a person can have to God. God, the one who made everything we see and know, who encompasses the entire universe, who is everywhere at all times, is all-knowing, all-powerful. David says, how, how can I be in his presence? And he asks these questions, and he says it this way in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And David, as the king of Israel, probably has two things in mind here. The first one, he's thinking about the tabernacle of Israel. The tabernacle constructed in the days of Moses, instructions given to Moses by God on how to build the tabernacle, all the furnishings that go along with it. This tabernacle is to go with the people of Israel wherever they go. And as they go, the Levites are the, the group of people of the 12 tribes of Israel that are to um, take care of the tabernacle. They are the ones who can come and go inside of the tabernacle. Every other Jew, including that of the tribe that David was a part of, would have been um, on the, the brink of the temple. They couldn't go in the temple or the tabernacle in this day and time. And so they would have been 45 feet away from the presence of God. Or later when the temple was built, later in Solomon's day, after King David, they would have been 90 feet away. And so as David's asking this question, he's asking the question, Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who, who can be near you, Lord? Who is it that gets to come and go into your presence? And what's interesting is he knows the answer that in the Old Testament sense, it's the Levites. But also as he's thinking about who God is and about the proximity to him, he also knows that there there has to be more about fellowship with God and being able to be in the presence of God. And so he has the heart and the mind uh, and the presence of God on on his soul. The latter part of that, he is, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Um, he's, he may be referencing and probably is referencing Mount Moriah, where eventually the temple would be built. In this particular time, the, uh, the tabernacle is probably sitting in, in Gibeon. And if it's in Gibeon, there's a possibility that the Ark of the Covenant is actually already on Mount Moriah. That's hard to determine for sure. But what, 
what is clear in this, this idea is he is asking, how can someone tabernacle among the presence of God? How can someone be close to a God who created and is vastly supreme in all ways? And that question he begins to answer. And, and when we think about it, you can think about it in the Old Testament sense that he is going to give you a list of things to do. That if you do these things, you can be in the presence of God. But really what I think he's doing, he's grasping even a New Testament sense. Even though there has not been the provision of Jesus Christ just yet, there is certainly this idea that you would see in the text of what God does through Jesus Christ to change a man. And so as I give you the list of seven qualities that give you proximity to God, these seven qualities are possessed only because you know, love, and serve God. But these are the things that make faithful men like God. And in verse 2, he says, the answer, the proximity of God, the one who can sojourn in his tent, the one who can dwell on the holy hill, on the mountain of God, Zion that is, is he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. In verse 1, what he says is that faithful men are above reproach. Faithful men are ones who are walking blamelessly. So when you think about walking blamelessly, what you want to think about is a man who is above reproach, who has great character, that when he comes into the city, that you know that he is a fair man. He is a man that is not uh, often accused unjustly. He is a man who is upright. He has great moral character. He makes wise and sound decisions. He cares for his family well. He is a merchant in the city gates. He, he trades fairly. He does all of his work diligently. This is a man who is well-respected, well-looked upon, not easily slandered to gossip. And if he was slandered to gossip, you wouldn't believe it anyway because the character of this man is so profound. This is a blameless man. This is what a faithful man looks like. And the reason why is because he does what is right. He makes the right decision. Um, oftentimes uh, you'll see men and they'll be at a crossroads on, on what decision to make. Do we make a decision that is uh, revolved around us and our selfishness and our flesh? Or do we make one that is l more selfless and more godly? And that's the kind of man that this is. Faithful men that are above reproach, they do what's right, but they also speak truth from their heart. They are a man who tells you the truth. They are a man who is separated from the rest of mankind. When I think about being in the presence of God, I think about what it looks like to be consecrated. And I had this thought this week, how if we're not set apart before men, are we going to be set apart before God? Like if there's not something different about us among our friends and about the people that we're in circles with that are around the workplace, there's not something different about us, then how are we going to stand before the presence of God. Friends, we have to be set apart. We have to be above reproach. That's the same idea that John the apostle had when he wrote 1 John 1 verse 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. We cannot say, hey, Lord, we love you. And then we don't do what his word says is what James would tell us in chapter 1. The reality is that people who are above reproach, they do what's right, they speak the truth, and they live in the light. It means that they're not caught up in sin. Um, they're not uh, having to always be guided. They, they make wise decisions. They turn quickly, and they do what is right. Verse 3 goes on and says, they don't just do what's right and speak truth in the heart, but it's 
is also a person who does not slander with his tongue. Uh, A faithful man bridles their tongue. It means they're not backbiters, they're not malicious, they're not gossips, they're not slanderers. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of its fruits. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in James chapter 3 that the the tongue is is a very powerful object, though small. It is like turning the rudder of a ship. It it guides a very big vessel. Um, It is like a, a spark that can set an entire forest ablaze. The reality is that your tongue can be a restless evil or it can be a joy to others. It can tear others down or it can build others up. One of the conversations we oftentimes have in our house is about the tongue and about whether or not we're building up and edifying one another or whether or not we're tearing one another down. Can I just tell you that our natural disposition in our life is to tear others down? That is the natural part. That is the default setting that you and I have. The default setting is to tear others down, to make much of ourselves. And we oftentimes do that through malicious speech. Oftentimes our tongue gets ahead of our brain. Amen. It happens in my life. And so, but these, these faithful men, they don't slander with their tongue. And so this involves several things. One, they they're not malicious. They're not mean-spirited. They don't just let loose with their tongue. Listen, men who are faithful don't make um, foolish decisions with their tongue. They don't say things that they don't mean. They are people who exercise self-control. It's not just along the idea of gossip, though that is true, but it goes even further. These are people who don't yell. They don't demean others. They don't ridicule. They don't exercise verbal abuse over one another. The idea of verbal abuse oftentimes can happen among men who are watching their boys play baseball and they are harsh and they're hurtful and they're mean. It can also happen sometimes along a spouse or a couple and intentionally you say something and even so malicious, it's like a dagger to the soul. You in many ways verbally will say something just to make a point or to in some ways bring a dagger. And it could be, I'm leaving you. I want a divorce. I want nothing to do with you anymore. And you have no intention of doing it, but you know that that would just bring some pain. Faithful men don't do that. Faithful men discern how to use and bridle their tongue. I'll tell you, I, can, I have a spirit of discernment. It's one of the great gifts that God's given me. Um, and, and I can discern things quickly oftentimes. And um, one of the things that God has allowed me to see in discerning conversations is in a conversation with a man or a woman, within 30 minutes, I can tell you if you're godly or not. And it's usually because of your conversation. Um, your tongue will display a lot of who you are. And it could be a way that you talk about someone else, or it could be about the way you talk about yourself, or it could be um, any of the things that you say, whether it be just provocative, or it could just be hurtful or demeaning. The reality is, is our tongue reminds us of, of the deep depravity we have, but it also shows others how closely connected we are to our Savior. Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of Matthew, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out is revelation of who we are. Faithful men, they don't just live above reproach, but they bridle their tongues. 
Psalm 15 goes on in verse 3, the latter part, and it says, And he does no evil to his neighbor, nor does he take a reproach against his friend. When you think about a person, it means that he does no evil to his neighbor. It means that when your, your, your neighbor ticks you off, you don't go build a bigger fence. That's the idea here. Uh, faithful men are gentle. Uh, that's the idea. They don't, they don't revile against their neighbor, their, their neighbor. They don't take up reproach against their friend. It means that they're, they're not easily agitated. They're not easily um, exercising foolishness. These men are gentle. The reality is I like the idea that Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, he would say, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The idea of meek is, is someone who's a gentle, kind soul. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean weak. And I think that's oftentimes we think about meekness means weak. It means that somebody is um, just a, a pushover. They roll over. And I think oftentimes we think that about Christianity. I think we think that to be a Christian means that you can't be a manly man, that you can't be strong and you can't be dependable. But when I think about Christianity, I think about the, the, the person who really exhibits Christianity, and that is Christ. And I think about the strength he possessed. Though he was meek, though he was self-controlled, though he was bridled, though he was under control, he was strong. I don't know many men that I've ever met in my life that would, one, be self-controlled, that they would listen to their Heavenly Father, that they would even give up their life for those who don't deserve it. And then the strength to endure such agony that this carpenter, the one who had hit his thumb many times, was just preparing himself for more pain. This was a man that possessed great strength, yet he was gentle. He was kind in accepting children. He was gentle to those who had sinned. He was loving towards those that were uh, enemies of God. And yet here it is, this man was meek. I think probably the idea of gentle or meekness or not reviling your neighbor or even um, doing something against their friend, the idea of meekness is best found in a horse. If you have a stallion out in the field and has never been bridled or tamed, uh, you approach it, you could get run over, you could get kicked, you could get harmed. But if you were to take that same stallion and you were to bridle it and train it, you take the same power of that stallion and what you do is you bring it under submission. And that self-controlled submission doesn't lack power, but it does have restraint. And I think a wise man has great restraint. They're self-controlled, which means that because they're self-controlled, they can live a life above reproach. They can be gentle, they can be kind, they can be humble, yet strong. And the, the thing that I love about many of the men in this particular body here at Stone Point is there are some tough, really rugged men that I would go to battle with, that their hands are hard and brittle and they've done much work, but God has softened their heart. He has reduced and restrained their tongue and he has brought about some faithfulness that you see men that are above reproach. That's the idea of a faithful man here that's the kind of guy that gets proximate or close to God in his tabernacle. It is the kind of guy that has fellowship with the Lord. It's also the same kind of guy that does not revile in return. You don't build a fence against your neighbor because you entrust your neighbor to God. It's the same eye that did that Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23. It says, he who committed no sin, which was speaking of Jesus, Peter writes about him. He says, neither was deceit found in his mouth, 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued and trusted himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus was hit, he didn't hit back. Men of faith don't teach their children to hit back on a playground to defend their mother's name. Listen, you can't show me that in scripture. Men who love Jesus don't teach that. As much as your name is important and as much as you have to defend it, listen, you don't see that from faithful men who are gentle and meek and mild. They don't handle conflict by reviling in return. When Jesus was spit upon, he didn't spit back. When he was cursed, he didn't curse back. Faithful men are under restraint. They're gentle. Verse 4 says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Um, this is kind of a little confusing when you first read it. You're like, what in the world is it even saying? In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Probably the best indicator of this is this is a man who, who loves Jesus. Um, this is a man who loves God, who um, is gentle and meek and above reproach, but he also despises sin. He knows that sin corrupts a person but he honors those who fear the Lord. So the idea here is that he doesn't necessarily look down on people that are sinful, but what he does do is he makes sure uh, that, he, as Psalm 1 says, he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers and sinners. He doesn't make his company among the immoral. The idea, a faithful man chooses wise company. The playground and the playmates that he runs around with are those who would be gentle and mild and temperate and self-controlled and above reproach like he is. So really, in essence, faithful men, you need to know, despise sin. 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and he says this in verse 22, that you are to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Faithful men, they flee from sin. That means that they don't they don't think clever ways to cover up sin. They don't think of ways to escape the present reality, to numb their pain. They are men who are present, available, and they also, they despise sinful ways. It means that they are pure and noble and they conduct themselves according to the standards of God. That's the kind of man that we're talking about. The latter part of that same verse is also a man who swears to his own hurt and he does not change. Uh, now, I don't know about you. I grew up and you're like, oh, you're not supposed to swear. Um, and so maybe you've even heard that. Um, the idea here in this context is a man who keeps his word, even if it cost him everything. Faithful men keep their word, even when it's not really of benefit to keep their word. James chapter 5, verse 12 says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The idea of this is that faithful men do what's right, but they also keep their word. So I see this oftentimes in construction or business areas. You have people who will oftentimes overpromise and underdeliver. Probably the area of the biggest growth in my life as a dad in the early years is that I would overpromise and underdeliver. That my yes wasn't always yes and my no wasn't always no. And the Lord convicted me about that several years ago. I shared with you guys as a church family about that. But the reality is we have a lot of men who we make promises and we don't deliver. 
And so a man who has great integrity and is faithful, their yes is yes. They tell you they're going to be there, they're there. If they tell you they can't be there, they're not there. But they do what they say they'll do when they say they'll do it. Now, we live in a construction age even today where there's lots of competition and there's raising prices in the market. But a faithful man keeps his word even about his quote in the midst of a raising market, even when it's of no benefit to do so. That's what this text means. It's not a man who just says, yeah, hey, I'll do what I say. But it's a man who does it even when it's of no benefit to do such. A great example of that, I think about the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Edmund and and Lucy and uh, their siblings, they they travel off into Narnia. And it's not too long that Edmund has run into the White Witch. He is seduced and given over to the cunning and crafty, deceitful schemes of her. He eats the dainty, delightful morsel and, and the treats that she has to offer. He finds himself, even as a traitor, on on her behalf longing to be in her presence more for what she offers him. He has given his soul over to this white witch, the one who has power over the kingdom. Aslan is near. He hears of what's happened. Aslan goes and he exchanges a deal for Edmund. He lets Edmund free and Aslan the lion willingly gives his life up. He's mocked, he's beaten, he's stripped, he's cut of his hair and his mane to where he looks naked and confused. He could have revolted on his word, but yet when it was of no benefit to do so, Aslan kept his promise. His word was yes, even though the white witch had no power over him. He did it anyway so that Edmund might be justifiably set free. He is found faithful. Faithful men keep their word. Their yes is yes and their no is no. Verse five says this, and faithful men, they don't just swear by his own hurt and not change, but verse five says, who does not put out his own money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. The idea here is that this faithful man does not take advantage of others, especially the weak. When you think about put out his money at interest, you could read that in this way that uh, you're not to give somebody a loan and you're not to charge them interest. And I don't think that's a great way of interpreting. Uh, As you study it more closely and you interpret it, I think the right way, it means that you don't give a loan to the weak and the poor and the destitute in order to take advantage of them. The reality is, is that you don't find a a widow and you take advantage of them. One of the things that I've seen commonly done in the last couple of decades is people who will knock on the doors of elderly only to sell them a reverse mortgage, to put them greater in debt so they have a little bit of money. What I think is, is that's a scheme of, of proselytization that is foolish, not only uh, for the the person that's doing it, but to rope uh, an elderly person into that. What you see here is somebody who is taking advantage of the weak. Faithful men do not take money that way. You don't get money paid because you're taking advantage of somebody. That's not the schemes of the wise. That's a scheme of the wicked. And so faithful men don't take advantage of the weak 
Probably some of the best examples that you would find in Scripture is you would see the gospel account of Jesus going into the temple and flipping over the tables. You might wonder, well, why would Jesus possess such a rage? And it was because there were people, merchants, setting up, and they were taxing people on the merchandise there, on, on the sacrifices, on the exchange rates. They were making large sums of money and taking advantage of other people. And if you make money by taking advantage of other people, you're, you're not considered faithful in the eyes of God. A great example of that in the Old Testament would be Ezekiel. Uh, you have the Levites and the priests, and they were to not only care for the tabernacle, but ultimately they were to care for the people of God. In Ezekiel 34, the, the prophet Ezekiel, he makes a charge against the leaders of Israel in Ezekiel 34, and this is what he has to say about them. He says, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak have not been strengthened, the sick have not been healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. He goes, you have not taken care of your people. You have not honored the Lord. You have taken advantage of, of the weak. They have given you things to take care of you, and you have not taken care of them. Faithful men don't take advantage of the weak. And the latter part of verse 5, says, and he who does these things shall never be moved. Who does what things? The faithful man who does these things. The faithful man who has a relationship with the Lord, who comes and goes into his presence, who could dwell in his tabernacle, who could dwell on a holy hill. The one who has a relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. These are the men who shall not be moved. Why? Because these men are above reproach. They have great integrity. They bridle their tongues. They are gentle and humble. They despise and run from sin. They keep their word. They don't take advantage of the weak. These men are not moved. They are a city on the hill. They let their light shine in the darkness. They stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, Matthew 7. They don't build their house on a baseless uh, Foundation of sand. They are not easily moved when the storm comes. They are firm. They are secure. They are hidden in the cleft of the rock. They are strong. They rest in Christ and not the provision of their own self-worth. They are not tossed to and fro by the empty, crafty, deceitful schemes of the enemy. Ephesians 4. They are not easily tricked or connived. They are not tossed by every wind of doctrine, every teaching. They know their Bibles. They love the Lord and their identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. This is what a faithful man looks like. And fathers, I implore you to become more faithful to be all that God has for you to do. And listen, here's what I want to caution you against. I want to caution you against walking out of here and examining two things on the list and trying to fix it yourself. What I want to caution you against is seeing these seven qualities, a list of things that you to do, but a list of things that you would admit to Christ that he needs to do in you despite your weakness. Because friends, what I want you to tell you is that I list these seven lists. It's very difficult for me to get up here and tell you that I'm living by every one of them. Because I'm, I'm not. I'm not faithful in all these areas, but I long to be. And what David knew is those that are exhibiting the qualities of Christ and walking in close proximity to him, these are the things that these men will possess. And so I don't want to build you up today to go, hey, if you're doing all these seven things, hey, you're more godly than anyone else. 
At the same time, if you're not doing all these things, then you're less godly than everyone else. What I would say is all of us need growth. And one of the greatest ways I think that maybe you could discover some of that growth, and I'll give you a, a shameful plug, is tomorrow night at Regeneration. Uh, friends, I'm on the very last step of regeneration, which is regenerate. Over the last handful of weeks, we've worked through continuing what we've learned and, and living in intimacy with Christ. And as we prepare to launch out, what we're basically doing is we're, we're just admitting our need for Christ every single day. And, and here's the thing. The, the reason I say that faithful men are secure is because I talk to guys all the time that are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and they're not secure. I am convinced that every man in this room wrestles with the same things today that you did when you were 12, 13, or 17. I really believe that many men in here have the same insecurities and the same weaknesses that you had as a child. The same ways that you long to fit in in school and the foolish things you would do to be a part of something are the same things you're tempted to do today. And the reason why is because we all want to belong. We all want to be accepted. And I think a lot of us, we struggle to figure out, and even though we find ways to cope with some of that along the way and along our journey, the problem is, is many of us still are prone to wear masks. And faithful men don't wear masks. And the reason why is because they're secure. They're comfortable in their own skin. Not because everything they have is great or grand, but because they know that in their weakness, Christ is strong. And one of the things that regeneration has taught me is the begin realizing ways that I'm not comfortable in my own skin. And listen, I'll tell you, if, if you were to say something harsh about me or, or accuse me of something, I could easily get backed up in a corner. And if I get backed in a corner, you know what I want to do? I want to bite. And the reality is we're all prone to do that. But as, as the Lord has shown me things over the last handful of months, it's just helped me to realize the insecurities I have don't come from Christ. The insecurities I have are deeply embedded in me and they're defense mechanisms that over time the Lord has shown me how to bring hope and healing into. And so maybe you're here and you go, well, I thought regeneration was about like alcohol abuse or like pornography or, or maybe it was about, you know, um, some drugs or something like that. I thought it was for like the messed up people. I would say it is for the messed up people, but I am that. And listen, I, I've, never, I've never been into drugs or alcohol um, struggled with some pornography when I was younger. Uh, but can I just tell you, more than anything, what God has done in regeneration has helped me to realize the insecurities that I've had and the ways that I've not identified with Christ through those over the years. And so here's what I would say. Maybe you're here and you'd go, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to live an upright life. I'm trying to live for the Lord. I, I, I do bridle my tongue pretty well. I seem to be pretty gentle, but I'm wrestling with who I am. I don't know who I am. And maybe you're 40, or maybe you're 50, or maybe you're 70, or maybe you're 21, and you're like, I just don't know who I am. Can I tell you that a great place to discover who you are is at regeneration? To come and just walk through the steps and go, Lord, would you just make me into a faithful person? Would you just help me to become more like you? That is the only goal of regeneration. And I get it. You're thinking, well, I got to go and I got to show up and I got to tell everybody every single thing in my life. And I would say, no, you don't. That is a misconception about regeneration. You do not have to tell every single dark secret of your life. All you got to do is come and be available to say, Lord, here I am. Would you use me? Would you teach me? And would you show me your ways? God, would you remind me things that I don't know about faithfulness? 
so that I can tell others about what you've done. I hope that I'll see some of you tomorrow night at 7 o'clock because I'm just telling you that every single person that is a part of Stone Point Church should walk through regeneration at some point. Probably my biggest regret, and maybe it's a little too legalistic, so I'm going to share the last 2% with you. But if I could make every member go through regeneration before you became a member, I would do it because it's been that good for me. And it's been that good for the perspectives God's given me. And all he's done is just showed me a handful of things down the road because I've put in the time and I've done the work that he's just shown faithfulness in. And he's used a curriculum to do it. But God is faithful. And he desires to have faithful men do his work. And so today I pray that we would usher you out to be faithful. And I pray that you would be faithful and diligent to do whatever it is the Lord has called you to today and this week. And then next week we'll gather again and we'll encourage each other some more about faithfulness. Friends, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing and then we're going to head out of here to um, fathers eat some popcorn and enjoy some days loving on our families. And listen, not laying around and being selfish. Let me say it one more time. Going and loving our families and pouring ourselves and exhausting ourselves for our brides and not laying around and being selfish. Father's Day does not give you an exemption pass to not be like Christ. Just FYI. That's extra. Let me pray for you. (laughs) Father in heaven, we love you and thank you for today and for your grace and your provision and for your mercy. God, would you help me to become more faithful? Lord, as I think about just the area of gentleness in my own life, God, I pray that you would soften my heart. Um, Lord, that I would be more kind and compassionate. Um, Lord, that I would be um, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. God, I pray that you would move in me and stir my heart's affection to be more meek and to be more compassionate and to be less quick and less swift to backbite. Lord, I need your help. Lord, without you, there is nothing good that is in my flesh apart from your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, would you mold me, shape me, move me, and a bunch of men in this room to develop the character and the Christ-like components that you desire to be lived out in faithful men. We love you and thank you for the privilege it is to gather. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.